Well, good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's good to see all these faces in the audience. We have a few visitors still with us, and we're grateful for that. I um, wanted to begin tonight by, since we're together as a group, I know we get our emails, but if you're like me, you miss one occasionally. And um, I want to just take a moment to talk about two things, first Wednesdays and first Sundays of the month. And the change, some of the changes related to that that we have in store for 2022. So I'll talk about Wednesday evenings first. We are resuming, finally, full services. Going back to our traditional format of meeting here in the auditorium as a group at 7 p.m. and then we'll break for classes at about 7.15 or so. With the exception being that on the first Wednesday of each month, so that's this Wednesday for January, um, we'll have either a pre-planned service, which means one of the men uh, plans that ahead of time, or what I call the participation service where we put the alphabetized list of men's names on the board. So that schedule is posted out in the auditorium if, uh, if you'd like to take a look at that. Next, uh, the first Sunday evening of each month. So that's tonight. And um, so tonight we're beginning our 2022 lecture series. I looked back through my records, and at least as far as 2002, we began this. So it's been going on for a number of years, a couple of decades, and of course with the exception of 2020, it was, it was an annual event. We always had it in the spring during the Bible class hour. We, the elders, decided to take a different approach this year and have it more of a theme that would last the entire year. So therefore, we'll have one lesson per month each Sunday, each first Sunday of the month. And um, that way we kind of, there's not as much overlap that way. And um, we, uh, we get to uh, think, about, think about it all year. Plus it doesn't take the Bible class time away from our young people um, the way that we used to do that. So with the exception being uh, the months of October and next month in February when we will have gospel meetings, we'll have a lecture like this um, first Sunday night of the month. So we'll be meeting with several men soon to uh, flesh out the rest of that schedule. And um, so look forward to that. First Sunday, first Wednesday, remember that. So our theme this year, as you should see behind me, is living in the fear of the Lord. And my, my hope tonight is to introduce that idea, kind of define what that means. Look at some examples of men and women, men specifically from my part tonight, that did that, that lived in the fear of the Lord. And some of the, um, some of the themes that we'll cover in future lessons and just to kind of give you an idea of some of the things that are coming, and I won't spend any time on this other than just to walk through them, we'll talk about how important it is to seek and acquire wisdom. We'll talk about choosing the right spouse and raising 
faithful children. And we'll talk about being careful how we act and what we say. And we'll talk about being good stewards of the financial blessings that we have. We'll have a sermon on how important it is to select good friends that can build us up. We'll talk about how important work is and what that means for our families. And then we'll wrap it up at the end of the year by pulling it all together with knowing that if, if we get it right with our heart, everything else will take care of itself. So, in a nutshell, living in the fear of the Lord touches every aspect of our lives. So let's talk about this idea, and I'd like to begin by reading a few passages that kind of use that phrase or that, or that idea. And one of the cornerstone passages that we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to more than once is from Proverbs chapter 1. <clears throat> you know, we refer to Proverbs as a book of wisdom. It's, in fact, filled with God's wisdom. And Solomon, David's son, who authored much of the Proverbs, you may recall that one of the first things he did when he became king is he asked God for a measure of wisdom. And he received it in great abundance. In 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29, let's take a look there real quick. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29. It says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people to the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. So that was from 1 Kings uh, as, uh, as Solomon came onto the scene and uh, received wisdom from God. And then here in Proverbs chapter 1 that we've got on the board, Proverbs begins with a proverb or wisdom from Solomon. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, <clears throat> to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And one of the things you may have noticed on the board is I highlighted the verbs in this passage. And because I want us to understand that this idea of living in the fear of the Lord, it requires action. It is not a passive thing. It requires action. Living, I'm sorry, um, the key ideas that I see here in these, in these words that are highlighted is are, are possessing knowledge and not only possessing it, <clears throat> but comprehending it and using it as well. We see listening, teaching, 
and continual growth as a child of the Lord. So the next thing I'd like to do is just uh, start breaking down the phrase into two pieces, living in the fear of the Lord. And so at a high level, we'll get into all the nuts and bolts and details in future lessons, but at a high level, what do we mean? Well, living simply means the manner of life that we, that we conduct. How we go about conducting ourselves each and every day. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse, verses 15 through 17. Uh, um, I'm going to read this from the ESV. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then the New American Standard translates that word, be careful. And the New King James and the King James Version say, walk circumspectly. So when I think about circumspectly, I, the word that comes to my mind is circumference, which is the entirety of a circle. Look at the entire situation. So the living part, um, well, let me, let me get this part in Hebrews first. I got ahead of myself. Um, the Hebrew writer said it this way and added this instruction for mature Christians in Hebrews 5 and in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So think about that constant practice. You walk circumspectly. You look at a situation, and hopefully from wisdom, you immediately know, no, I, I need to stay away from this, or this is something that I need to invest more time in. So that's, uh, that's kind of what we're, that's the idea that I want us to think about. So this living part requires being careful and mindful of every step we take in life. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are to examine the entire picture and to carefully consider all circumstances and the possible consequences of any action and decision we make. This is so important as we're young and as we're starting to make some decisions for the very first time. It's a little old, or a little easier, I should say, it should be, it needs to be. If we do it right when we're young, it does get easier as we get older. So you got that to look forward to. And we need to make those judgments based on the knowledge and wisdom that we acquire from Scripture. All right, so how about the fear part? What do we mean by that? You know, in our day and in our culture and, and, and the way that we most often think of using this word fear, we think of it as maybe some type of phobia or some type of terror. So by that definition, I fear snakes and yellow jackets. No doubt about it. I will go the other way as quickly as I can. But is that what we're talking about? this type of fear of the Lord? Certainly, 
The scriptures describe this type of fear of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets speak often of the terror of the Lord that would come upon his enemies and even Israel and Judah when they became disobedient. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. And how about the more familiar New Testament scripture from Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 10. Let's take a moment to look at that. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. This is an ominous, there's, this passage concludes with an ominous statement that warns us about deliberate sin, speaking to Christians. For if we go on sinning deliberately, beginning in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fire and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then the verse that we were getting to. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The New American Standard says it is a terrifying thing. So, I saw a couple of shakes no of the head when I said, is this the kind of fear we're talking about? It's not. You're right. So what kind, let's, let's, let's talk about what it does mean. So what we were talking about, that is not the kind of fear that faithful Christians are to have. What we're talking about is a mindset of very high regard, very high respect and reverence for God. So let's look at a few verses that talk about that. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost has come 3,000 plus obey the gospel. And in the following verses from that, in verses 42 and 43, the record says, and they devoted themselves, they being the ones who had become, well, they're not called Christians yet, but I'll say Christians because you'll understand what I mean. They're not called Christians until later in the book of Acts. They had repented uh, of their sins. They had turned from Judaism. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all, the ESV says, or fear as some other translations say, came upon every soul. They began to understand and respect and revere the Lord. So a great character example of this is just a little further along in the book of Acts when we're introduced to Cornelius. So Acts chapter 10, 
Acts chapter 10, we're told about Cornelius. He was what we call um, the first Gentile convert sometimes. And in verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 10, it says this about, about him. Peter was uh, about to convert him. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. You know, it's, when, it can, when it can be said that, when this can be said about any of us, but especially a man and his family, where it says, all his household. He was obviously the leader, and this likely meant not only his children, but perhaps some servants as well, being the, the man of military position that he was. And it's, um, it's something that we can all strive for in, in the way that we live out our daily lives <clears throat> and um, and, sh and show that we do fear the Lord, it, it, it will have an impact on our entire family. Just a few more scriptures to kind of talk a little bit more and add a little bit more context to the fear that I'm describing. One of the Psalms of David in Psalm 103, Psalm 103, and in verse 13, Psalm 103 in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, those of us who are parents, we can see the, the wisdom in this statement. As we're raising our children, hopefully to, to do right and teach them about the Lord and we, and we recognize that they fear us in a way that shows respect and reverence, we'll have compassion for them when that's needed. And uh, God has promised the same to us. So, and back over in the New Testament for a couple of other ideas. After the Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and his obedience to the gospel, in becoming a Christian, Saul preached boldly in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. After just a few days prior, being willing to put to death and commit to prison anyone that would admit the same. After a plot by the Jews to kill him, he escaped to Jerusalem where he continued preaching Christ. And the result was the continued growth in that region. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, it says, as a result, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the effect that having this proper reverence and fear of the Lord can have is more and more turning to the Lord, as it did in the first century. In Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, we'll read a verse about Noah 
We know what a man of God Noah was, the great faith that he possessed, landing him a spot in the Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. <coughs> Excuse me. So, with that, that being said, uh, hopefully we have a, a little bit clearer understanding of what that means to be living in the fear of the Lord. Conducting our daily lives, as I mentioned a moment ago, with a deep reverence and respect for the commandments of God. So in the time that we have left, I want to examine two biblical characters. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And there's, there's, there's so many. We just mentioned Noah and, and so many throughout uh, history of the Old Testament. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, the apostles from the New Testament, just to name a few. And um, I want to talk about Daniel. Might not, you know, maybe not the first one that came to, came to mind if you thought about characters, but he is a man who feared the Lord. No doubt about it. So we're going to talk about him just a little bit. Several stories from the life of Daniel are familiar to us. We study some of them from our youth. And those lessons never grow old. So what I'd like to do in introducing us to Daniel is we're going to read chapter 1. And that's where we're immediately told and introduced to the character of Daniel and his reverence and fear of the Lord with the main idea in chapter 1 of um, his stand or his decision not to sin by violating the dietary restrictions of being a Jew. So with that said, let me get turned over there. Daniel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see you, why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So one of the first things that stands out to me that I'll make note of from this, from this chapter is Daniel and his companions stood out to their enemies, stood out to their captors, the Babylonians. They were selected by the chief eunuch and they were to be educated and then assigned duties in the royal palace as we, as we read. So Daniel was willing to accept this assignment, but he drew the line on feasting on the king's food delicacy, delicacies and wine. And did you note in verse nine what God did because Daniel refused to sin, because he drew the line, because Daniel feared him. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And when it was all said and done, as we read just a minute ago in verse 19, the king, after speaking with them, there was no one that could compare to them. Even those in his own kingdom that he looked to for interpretations, sorcery, whatever was going on at that time in that culture, he found these four men much better, ten times better, the record says, in that type of wisdom. In chapter 2, we read one of many interpretations of dreams and visions that are recorded in the book. This is the first one, probably maybe one of the more recognized ones. And it, it's the story of a very troubling dream 
that uh, the king, that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and the subsequent interpretation of Daniel. So King Nebuchadnezzar took this opportunity to put all his uh, magicians, experts to the test. He demanded that not only interpret my dream, tell me what I dreamed. And of course they, they said, uh, well, we, nobody can do that. And uh, the king was, was furious and he issued a decree that all wise men in Babylon be killed. Well, guess who four of those young men were? They were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But once again, the respect that Daniel and his companions had earned was rewarded. Daniel asked for a time to meet with the king, promising that he would interpret the dream. And then the very first thing that he did was he prayed to God for mercy and for God to reveal the king's dream and its meaning. Arioch, a man who was the king's captain, brought Daniel to the king and told the king, Daniel can interpret your dream. Arioch put his own life on the line for Daniel. That's the kind of man that he recognized Daniel to be. Daniel began by saying no one, himself included, could describe the king's dream. But he said in verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He didn't take credit for this. He gave the credit and the glory to God. After Daniel did correctly describe the dream and its interpretation, King Nebuchadnezzar declared in verse 47 of chapter 2, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. So, however, um, the faith that King Nebuchadnezzar claimed to have at that moment was short-lived or meaningless. We read in chapter 3 of the golden idol that he erected and commanded everyone in the kingdom, worship it or be put to death. And this is where Daniel's three companions take center stage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show their fear of the Lord and their faith to be just as strong as Daniel's when they refused to comply with his order. And not only did they refuse, but they openly declared to the king, after the king gave them an opportunity, hey, I heard this about you, is it true? Is it true that you won't fall down and worship this image? So if you'll do it now, we're good. Otherwise, you'll die in the furnace. And, and in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 16, this was their response. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you, has, you have set up. So the rest of that story in the fiery furnace we know pretty well. Once again, the king declares his faith in the God of heaven, and it seems more sincere this time. How about the lion's den, that story we've known all of our lives. This is a few years later. Daniel is now living 
under the reigns of King Darius of the Medes and King Cyrus of the Persians. But his character and his faith are well established. And he has tremendous authority and respect. But he does have political enemies who devise a plan to entrap him. And uh, so essentially they knew what kind of man he was. They devised a plan, had it enacted into law, and anyone that uh, violated that law would be executed. So what's the first thing that Daniel did when he realized this is going to cost me my life? Verse 10, um, it says that he went to his house <clears throat> where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He did not change a thing. And so Daniel was condemned to death. King Darius was tricked. Uh, he was devastated. He thought very highly of Daniel. But he was unable to change the wills that were in motion now. Daniel is cast into the pit of lions, and the king announces his hope that God will intervene. And in verse 16, uh, Darius says, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Darius then spent the night fasting and sleepless, raced to the den of lions at dawn, and he found Daniel alive, and he declared, Daniel declared in verse 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. In verse 23, it says, Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God, because he had feared his God. Um, I, we won't take the time, we don't have the time to go through this, but in chapter 9, I would encourage you just separately on your own to read the prayer of Daniel that's recorded there. It's, it's just simply an awesome prayer, and one that can serve as inspiration for us in our own prayer lives. So, the prophet Daniel, <clears throat> a man that lived in the fear of the Lord and he did it every day. He didn't hide from it, but he proclaimed it. He knew that salvation was from God Almighty. How different might things be for us when at times that we are tempted to sin, we refuse to do so, and we find an alternate course of action if that's what's needed. We also need to be reminded that the success we all have in life, all glory belongs to God. When we are threatened in some way at school or perhaps in the workplace, put all our faith and trust in God and never, ever stop praying no matter what. Okay, that was the Old Testament character. So let's take a look in the New Testament <clears throat> in chapter 6 of Acts at Stephen. Chapter 6 of Acts. We'll look at Stephen's life. So to add a little bit of context to this early first century era, <clears throat> believers that would soon be called Christians were growing in great numbers. In chapter 5, 
The Sadducean council had the apostles imprisoned and ordered them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. The apostles refused, and on the advice of Gamaliel, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, they were released from custody. So there was a complaint by some of the Greek-speaking Jews and one that needed to be addressed. Rather than take time away from their teaching, seven men were chosen to see to this matter. Stephen was among those seven. And it says about him in verse 5, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen began to do mighty works among the people. And once again, these enemies took notice. False accusations were made against Stephen. He was dragged back before the council. He was ordered to respond to their lies, and did he ever respond? Beginning with Abraham, and he worked his way through Jewish history, he reminded them of what had been true for centuries. And we'll read verses 51 through 53. Verses 51 through 53. Stephen talking to these false accusers in the council. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, <clears throat> you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen really did the same thing, said a lot of the same things that Peter did in Acts chapter 2. He had accused them of murdering Jesus Christ. And, uh, but, but this was a different audience, one that refused to listen, but rather one whose goal was to eliminate all dissenting voices and teachings. And Stephen paid the price with his life and was viciously stoned and murdered. His dying words echoed that of Christ as he hung on the cross when he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We read that tonight. And as an aside, I mentioned Gamaliel. I, I, I think about as this scene ends with Stephen being stoned, you remember who was there, young man Saul of Tarsus. And it's, this, it, it's as if the the wisdom of Gamaliel was beginning to ring true. Saul, who was a strict Jew, an enemy of Christians, would soon become a Christian and an apostle himself. And as, as we say sometimes, the rest is history. Stephen's death did not stop anything. It served as a catalyst for the gospel to spread even more, as we learn in the first few, few verses of chapter 8, in verses 1 and 4, it says, And there arose on that, Greg, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about, and I think one version says, went everywhere preaching the word. So when there was work to be done, Stephen was an obvious and willing choice. When he was asked to defend his teachings, he responded with Scripture. When he was threatened by men, he stood his ground. Even when he was faced with death, he held fast to his faith. So when there's work to be done, 
among our brothers and sisters, are we one of those go-to people? When there's a call for volunteers, do we raise our hand? I think overall that answer is yes. There is one area where we need to improve. We need more who are willing to teach and assist in our Bible classes. Let me say that one more time. We need more who are willing to teach and assist in our Bible classes. COVID has impacted us in so many ways. Days are almost gone when we can blame anything on COVID, I hope. I see it coming. I trust that that day is almost here. We went from no classes to Zoom classes and Wednesday-only classes, and then we were able to add back Sunday morning classes. Our young people are the future of the church. Here and in other places, you know, we've had many grow up, two of mine are in other places now. Some of you will be in other places when you grow up. What you learn here makes a difference. I just got to thinking, if we could fill out the teaching roster in one-tenth of the time that it takes us to fill out a meal list, wouldn't that be something? That would just be amazing. When we are questioned and disagreed with on our faith, can we respond with Scripture? That's the instruction that Peter gave us in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he said, Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We enjoy a time and place in history of the freedom to worship and teach as we are instructed to in Scripture. But those freedoms are eroding. Much of Scripture is maligned by those around us and is loudly decried as homophobic, bigoted. I mean, pick, pick your buzzword of the day. When and if the time should come that laws are enacted that are in conflict with being a faithful Christian, will we stand firm? That may not happen in my lifetime but it might in yours. Or it may happen during the time of your children or your grandchildren. So, are you living in the fear of the Lord? I hope it is clear that we must. We'll spend the rest of the year coming back to it, digging into it, understanding it even better, If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you know right from wrong, but you have yet to confess your faith before men, repent of your sins, and be baptized in His name, then you are not living in the fear of the Lord. If you're an erring child of God, and sin has entered your life in such a way that you, just, you, you can honestly admit to yourself I just don't fear the Lord like I should. Then let's, let's, let's take care of that. Repent and we'll pray with you. We're going to sing a song of invitation to give you an opportunity to consider these things. And we invite you, if you have any need at all, to come to the front while we stand and sing.